to the JPO podcast. This is the October 2020 episode. I'm Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans, and today we're going to be featuring some articles on trauma, specifically tibial shaft and distal radius fractures. Before we jump into the material, I do want to give a shout out to Nick Fletcher in Atlanta and our other POSNA podcast he's been working on. It's entitled Interview with a PD Pod. The latest episode features two of his fellow members of the TSRH family, Drs. Christine Ho and Amy McIntosh. So if you haven't checked that out yet, please give it a listen. And with no further ado, we'll get into the content. First up, I'll hand things off to my co-host, Julia Sanders at Children's Hospital Colorado. She's going to be discussing some recent literature on tibial shaft fractures with one of our shared mentors, Andy Pinnock, out in San Diego. This is Julia Sanders from Children's Hospital Colorado, and I'm here today with Dr. Andrew Pennock from Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego, and he's here today to discuss with us his paper entitled Risk Factors for Adverse Radiographic Outcomes After Elastic Stable Intramedular Nailing of Unstable Diaphyseal Tibia Fractures in Children. So thank you so much, Dr. Pennock, for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So just to get us started off, um, it seems in the recent years, there's been a lot of interest in pushing the traditional indications for flexible nailing and defining their appropriate use. So could you tell me a little bit about what prompted you to tackle the tibial question specifically? So we have looked at the tibia previously, and that was a publication that came out about three years ago, I want to say in 2017. And in that study, we looked at some of the tibias that we fixed with plate and screws versus tibias that we fixed with flexible nails. And one thing I was surprised about in that original cohort was how much residual deformity we had in these tibias that we fixed with a flexible nail. So the purpose here was to delve a little bit deeper into that, see if we could better understand why we were ending up with residual deformity. Was it something that was technically maybe done in a not ideal manner? Was it a certain cohort of patients that are at higher risk? We really wanted to try to answer some of those questions. I think that's a great thing to investigate because I think there's still a lot we don't know about pushing these indications. Um, So several of your findings were really surprising to me, um, particularly that greater angular deformities were not associated with age, weight, comminution, or canal fill, which I think are the traditional things that we all would have expected. Um, And this does contradict some of the prior literature that's out there. So what do you think contributed specifically to those findings? Yeah, I... uh... I spent a lot of time measuring radiographs, <laughs> thinking that it would actually make a difference. A lot of time measuring the canal size, measuring the diameter of these flexible nails that wasn't reported in the op report. So um, I really felt that the canal fill, much like the femur, would make a difference. And that 80% value would probably be key. And, and it was interesting that that didn't pan out. And I guess I'll come back to that. Um, Clearly, some other studies have suggested that the older, larger kids are also at risk. Um, I was surprised in this cohort that it didn't. Um, I think a few points there. There are a lot of patients, actually, and this is the largest study out there. We had 172 patients from the three centers. So 
maybe we were underpowered to see subtle differences, but obviously if these were huge, huge risk factors for failure, I think it would have panned out. We would have seen it. I think the concerning thing here is just the high percentage of patients that do have residual deformity. So uh, maybe it's not so much these single factors or variables predispose you to having angular deformity, but maybe it's this, this technique really puts you at risk of having residual deformity. And, and I think some of it is, is technical too, how the nails are inserted, the thought process that goes in. Um, in the ends, I think you were maybe gonna touch on it, but the fact is that we found that were important, um, were open fractures, as well as fractures with a compartment syndrome. And at first, I was kind of left scratching my head. Why are these the ones that seem to lose reduction more and have complications and problems? And I mean, maybe there's a few reasons for it. Maybe these are the higher energy uh, fractures. So maybe with that higher energy fracture, there's more periosteal stripping and oftentimes, you know, more likely to have maybe some comminution or you know, uh, associated fibula fractures. So maybe it's a bunch of these factors that all add up that then put it at greater risk of falling off and maybe you can't distill it down to one simple thing. Uh, the other thing that's common with open fractures and compartment syndrome is these are the kids that are going back and forth to the operating room. I mean, almost all of those are going to get another trip to the operating room. So they're typically put in a splints or maybe even nothing in between um, these OR washouts. And I think that gives more, creates more opportunity to lose reduction. I think we're asking a lot of these relatively small, flexible nails to hold these um, fractures that often have a long lever arm. And when they're not in the cast, I think there's just a greater likelihood that they can migrate on you, especially if it's not performs, you know, surgically optimally. And, and let's be honest, we have uh, three pretty high-volume centers here over almost 10 years, and we're only talking 170 tibia flexible nails, and each of these centers has a bunch of surgeons. So no surgeon, at least in these three centers, is probably doing more than one of these a month at best, and probably realistically, you're doing one of these every six months. So when you're not doing it all the time, maybe we're not quite as good as we think we are. I think those are great points. You know, the thing that does come to mind, as you said, is that these open fractures in the kids with compartment syndrome probably had a higher uh, angle of displacement or higher amount of displacement at the initial injury, and that's what it wants to go back to. Um, and I think touching on the technique side, this is not an easy surgery, and I've certainly found... Um, as I've experienced in my first couple of years of practice that, you know, you get better every time, but these are, this is not just a easy in, easy out. These can be pretty frustrating. And so I think technique definitely plays a role in that. Um, do you have any pearls for, for some of our, you know, younger listeners out there that might be facing, as you say, one of these every six months or so that, that you've found helpful in the past for inserting these that, that might help out? Yeah, I guess the the first thing I would say is even taking a step further back and not abandoning other techniques. I mean, I believe most orthopedic surgeons are very comfortable putting a leg screw and a neutralization plate on a long bone. Um, historically, that was done in the adult population. And the major problems with that were non-union 
um, delayed union and wound breakdown. Um, Non-unions and malunions are very rare in kids when they're treated with a, a plate and screws. Uh, wound complications can occur, but they're much lower in kids. So I think if you're uncomfortable, if you have a fracture pattern that you are worried about, maybe it isn't amenable to flex nailing, um, especially with the open fracture where the wound's already open, I think it, you just need to recognize it's okay to put a plate and screws on there. If it's a long oblique fracture, spiral fracture, it's not infrequent for us now just to put you know three good leg screws across it. And the odds of having to take those screws out are almost 0%. So you do decrease the odds of a second surgery and reduce the total care or the cost of care for the patient. So I think not being afraid of doing that is the first point I'd make. The second one is... If I, the most common residual deformity we ended up with was a valgus deformity, but even more common was a recurvatum deformity. And if we critically looked at the x-rays, I think many times the surgeon at the end of the case didn't recognize the trajectory of the flexible nails and the tips were often faced anteriorly, distally. And I think that's, makes the fracture more likely to go to recurvatum. And if you look at most of the technique guides, they actually do say that the tips should be facing posteriorly and that can help prevent the recurvatum deformity. So quite a few of ours didn't, in hindsight, didn't have that orientation. So I think that can make a difference. Um, I really wish I could say that canal fill was essential, but our data didn't really support that. And I think that was one of the things that I found was that um, anecdotally, I noticed that the canal dimensions are often 12 millimeters or greater in these older adolescents. And a lot of the commercially available nails um, have a maximum size of four millimeters. So if you put two four millimeter nails in, I mean, if it's a 12 millimeter canal, you're only going to fill two thirds of that 66%. So you're never going to be able to even get up to that 80% canal fill. But I thought that was going to be more important than it was. Interestingly, it wasn't. I know uh, for the femur, Several people have talked about double stacking nails. Uh, the, the Atlanta group with uh, Bush and Willimon, they've published their, um, their series of putting four flexible nails in femurs with bigger canals. I, I anecdotally saw a few cases in our series of where uh, four nails were put in. We didn't include that in the series just because it was such a small number. Um, but clearly, there are some other approaches that can be made to to bulk it up. Um, I think there's more and more interest in rigid nails, quite honestly. Um, I know there's several manufacturers of implants that are now kind of trying to make more pediatric specific nails with maybe a smaller entry so you don't do as much damage to that proximal tibia physis. And uh, let's be honest, I mean, on the Peed sports side, all the time I'm drilling across that proximal tibia physis, and it's very rare that I see a uh, premature physial closure or angular deformity from it. So I think putting a smooth nail across it probably is fine. I know anecdotally people have been doing that for years and um, you know, on your telescopic nails, I mean, those nails cross the physis and there's very, very few reports of premature physial closure by putting a smooth nail across the physis. So I think there is greater interest in other techniques as well. Absolutely. I think I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of that in the, in the 
what we call, you know, man children where they're 12 year old boys that are much bigger than I am, you know, and their tibial canal is 12, 13 millimeters. So those are all good points. And and I think considering plating and rigid nailing and your other options for fixation are absolutely key here. Um, so one other thing I did want to touch on with the flex nails and, and your study is, you know, the majority of the patients in your cohort were immobilized and kept non-weight bearing for a period of time postoperatively, which is or really the standard of care for most, most people will do that. Um, you know, what are, what are your thoughts on the utility of post-operative mobilization? Do you think that's necessary or sort of one of those things that we all do because that's the tradition? It's a, it's a great, great question. I recently um, gave a talk on tibia and ankle trauma um, to a, con- a conference in India, and there was a, a very international perspective and crowd there. And one of the um, uh, the participants from Switzerland was very critical of um, just putting a cast on a patient with flexible nails and felt very strongly kind of like what's been advocated by the French that you do not need to put these patients in a cast. And what's interesting, across three institutions and 20 plus surgeons, almost every one of these patients in the United States is casted. Um, maybe in Europe, they're a little more meticulous about their surgical technique. Maybe the European children are a little better behaved. Maybe they're smaller and a smaller BMI. But I just think that these flexible nails aren't rigid enough for them to go without a cast. This isn't the same as a four-year-old femur fracture, a six-year-old femur fracture, um, where you're putting it in uh, a knee immobilizer maybe at the end. I mean, these are often teenage injuries. These are 13-year-old kids. It's the end of a very long lever arm. And I think there's a lot of deforming forces. So I, I was surprised to see that almost all these patients across three institutions were casted. Uh, I was surprised to see the length of the casting, which I think in this group averaged over six weeks, um, or a little over six weeks. I was also surprised at the duration of non-weight bearing. Um, and I think it's all, it shows the same thing that these uh, flexible nails are not as, as uh, a strong of a construct as we'd like them to be. So we have to protect them more than maybe we ideally would want to protect these tibias. All good points. And definitely, I think the European, the international experience is very different than ours. Uh, with flex nails. And I do wonder if there's a lot of other contributing factors to that, but thank you so much for your time and and discussion of this. Was there any, any other points that you wanted to bring home with our listeners? (laughs) No, I think uh, that covers uh, most of it, but thanks for the opportunity to chat about our paper. And I should thank our uh, co-authors too. I was really appreciative that uh, um, both the group in Northern California, as well as the group in Texas uh, contribute a lot of the patients and a lot of the work to the study. Julia and Andy, this is awesome. Thank you for this excellent paper and insightful review. I can personally very well relate to uh, putting in a couple tibial flexible nails and looking at the x-ray, seeing 5 to 10 degrees of angulation, and then trying to decide, am I going to put a cast on it and try to mold it? Am I going to try to bend the nails? Uh, Why didn't I just put a little plate on it in the first place? So I think this is a very valuable and realistic contribution to the literature. Next up, we're going to another co-host, Dr. Craig Lauer at UNC Chapel Hill. And he's going to be discussing an article on distal radius fractures that really shed some light on the current status of literature and evidence in that field. 
Welcome, everyone. This is Craig Lauer coming from University of uh, North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Next, we will discuss an article entitled Displaced Distal Radius Fracture Treatment, a survey of positive membership from lead author Andy Georgiatis from Gillette Children's Hospital and senior author Jay Janecki and also Jamie Burgess from Lurie Children's at Northwestern University. There's a decent amount of debate about the treatment of distal radius fractures in children aged 3 to 10. The classical dogma is that completely displaced fractures would benefit from reduction. Uh, and this was called into question with a prospective study out of the Hawaii group, which showed pretty good results with less cost and higher patient satisfaction and family satisfaction when there was non-sedated mobilization used as opposed to a sedated reduction. So with that as a little bit of background, I'm actually joined today by Jamie uh, Burgess from Northwestern and also from uh, Dr. Andy Georgiatis from Gillette Children's. So welcome to the podcast, both of you. Thanks so much. And so with that background about distal radius fractures, can you tell me a little bit about this particular study and how it came to be and what your specific purpose was when designing it? Yeah, this is Andy Georgiatis uh, speaking. Well, I personally became involved in the IMPACT group, which is a group of North American investigators trying to design uh, clinical trials for pediatric orthopedics. And Jay Janicki and uh, Dr. Burgess are leading that group. And we tried to decide as a study group what were the highest impact areas where we could make a difference in pediatric orthopedics and also do feasible prospective research. And one of those areas was the very common pediatric displaced metaphyseal distal radius fracture. All the investigators and participants perceived a huge practice variation, and there have been some publications about that practice variation. So we, as a group, tried to establish some equipoise for the question of how to best treat these distal radius fractures, or at least what the objective outcomes would be if you did or did not reduce a displaced metaphyseal distal radius, so a completely bayonet-opposed one. And we thought the best place to take the pulse of that question was to go right to the POSNA membership first and give them scenarios and ask them what they would do and if they would be willing to randomize those patients. And so just in terms of the development of this question, did the, the idea for the impact trial, um, had that already been ongoing and they had targeted distal radius fractures or did that come about as a result of this survey study? No, um, the impact idea came about in pursuing distal radius fractures because back in October 2017, we invited many um, different institutions to give us a surgeon representative and about 30 different sites were represented and we discussed about six different um, fracture topics that have current equipoise and based on surveys of the attendees from that meeting and discussions, um, distal radius fractures were decided to be prioritized for a potential randomized controlled trial in the future. Okay. And as you mentioned, part of that is due to equipoise and part of that is just due to the sheer number that we see in the healthcare costs incurred with our current treatment, which uh, as we'll find out, we're not really sure uh, if that's uh, optimal or not. Um, so let's get into this study and then maybe we'll talk about the impact trials and kind of future directions um, Dr. Rogatis, could you tell me how you all conducted this study and what were some of your, uh, what was your methodology specifically? Absolutely. We constructed uh, 28 scenarios in uh, children ages 3 to 10, 
And we tried to get the full spectrum of age, angulation in all planes, and displacement. And we constructed it like we were, were doing a discrete choice experiment where we wouldn't have to do every single iteration at every age or every angulation or every displacement, but to get the full spectrum so we could do robust statistical analysis. We took those 28 scenarios, we disseminated it to the full POSNA membership, and we were able to get 320 surgeons to respond. And every fracture scenario was displayed with an AP and lateral of the wrist. And then a question, would you reduce this fracture with sedation or anesthesia, or would you simply do non-sedated immobilization, basically place a cast, but not do a formal reduction maneuver? And then the second question was, would you be willing to randomize this child if there was a uh, randomized control trial? And so we took those responses to try and determine what the current practice patterns were in our main organization for Pete's ortho, and then what the future might hold for a prospective trial. Um, what we found was that most of the displaced distal radius fractures would be reduced. Basically, all of those that were completely bayonet opposed from ages 3 to 10, a majority of respondents would have reduced those. But seven of eight of them in those scenarios, a majority of POSNA members would have been willing to randomize if there was a study ongoing. So those are the principal findings of the study. And that's that's so interesting that we all have kind of been trained. And like I said, it's kind of dogmatic that we think that we must reduce that, but then everyone or a majority at least have expressed equipoise, as you mentioned, um, about, about whether that's actually the right thing, but it's almost like the error on the side of being more aggressive um, and potentially being wrong in that way. Um, can I ask you, uh, ask you both actually, what surprised you the most about the results? I was most surprised to see that. Well, I was most pleased to, to see that there are many people willing to randomize and that I was surprised that there were a range of scenarios that people were willing to randomize. I would say that the things that were the most interesting to me in this study, first of all, there was a, an analysis that determined what would be the biggest predictor of a pediatric orthopedist performing a reduction and the presence of displacement was the single most important predictor. So that was consistent with what we thought was going to be studied and the rationale for even choosing a reduction treatment. And then after that, it was coronal angulation. So the more angulated it was in the coronal plane, the more likely people were to reduce. And actually, the coronal angulation was the only statistically significant predictor of someone's willingness to randomize. So that is the thing that made someone apprehensive about randomizing the simulated patient or not. So I thought that was quite interesting, especially because at the same meeting where this was presented at POSNA in 2019, I think the best poster award from Teresa Capello suggested that coronal plane remodeling in children's wrist fractures was basically as good as sagittal plane remodeling, which would be a new finding if that were, were true. And then there were some other secondary findings in this survey study, like the differences between uh, years in practice and if you worked with residents or fellows, that seemed to have some uh, effect around the margins of whether someone was willing to randomize or not. Yeah, I think those surgeon-related factors, um, I think that was the most interesting thing to me. I had a little bit of a difficulty unpacking that, but maybe we can do that a little bit here. So. Uh, I found myself playing a little bit of psychologist trying to figure out um, what surgeon characteristics would make you more likely to reduce or more likely to uh, be willing to randomize. Uh, you looked at age and 
Um, I thought it was interesting that it seemed like the younger surgeons were the ones that were more likely to be willing to randomize. Is that accurate? Yeah, there were some specific age groups that were more likely to reduce the fracture. So people actually in mid-career were more likely to reduce fractures. And then particularly if you weren't in an academic model, so this was a multivariate analysis, if you weren't in an academic model, younger surgeons were actually more willing to randomize. Um, but overall, across the entire cohorts, actually, uh, those under five years into practice, so those earliest in their careers, were the least willing to randomize. So there's a little bit of, you know, ifs and thens. So those were interesting findings. I also wondered what you made of the, um, the response rate. So I know 320 responses is a large number, but I think it's 23% of the, of the POSNA group. And I think that's about on par with... Um, with what a typical response rate is for these POSNA-wide type surveys. My question is really about who do we think is answering these? Are the people that are answering these, or is it always the same 23% who answer every other survey just because they're more willing to take surveys? Or do we think it's maybe the people who are more tuned in to this being you know, either trauma topics or specifically this being a controversial topic because they've read the papers on it recently? And so are, are we somewhat biased towards people who are going to have maybe a more, more non-traditional approach to these sorts of things? Do, do we think that, that, that our sample is influenced in any way by, by selection for taking the survey? Yeah, uh, Jamie, you can respond if you like. Um, honestly, I definitely think it is biased in some way. Uh, speaking as a researcher and not a surgeon, um, I get invited to participate in these surveys, but I never fill them out, mainly because I'm not a surgeon and I do not make clinical decisions. So um, I would say there's a good, I think, 10% of the POSNA membership that probably fits my category where I don't actually practice. So, Jamie, so you're saying you, you, you didn't go through and fill it out and just say you'd be willing to randomize everyone because you knew you wanted to have a study <laughs> in this, right? Correct, correct. I was okay, like, fair enough. Like, I don't. No, so I, I don't really have any any basis in which to choose or fill out the survey. So, anyways, that's an aside. Fair um, enough. Actually, I, I bet I, many of us did not realize that the survey is sent to also the non-surgeon members of POSNA because um, I think when we're designing these things, we're probably not thinking about that. So that's really insightful. Yeah, that's yeah. I, I I feel like I should talk to the evidence based committee or something about like if there should be a little line and say like, are you actually a practicing surgeon? Because that would probably up our up the response rate. Because I could yeah. at least pick that and say like, hey, I at least clicked on your email. I would echo those comments. I think that's insightful, Jamie and Craig. And um, it's probably a similar group of people who are at the pointy end of the stick and reading the most recent literature and kind of know what we might be getting at and are familiar with the Crawford Izuka study. And um, also, it's a simulation, so it's difficult to know, just like voting, um, if people really do this in practice, what they mark on a, a paper or on a screen. So, the definitely weaknesses in survey investigations. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I did want to also ask um, uh, Dr. Trujavis for you. You know, I, I often will have these patients in clinic and, you know, and sometimes it's tough to look in the crystal ball and know exactly how well they're going to model or where they're going to end up. Um, and while I'll have complete displaced fractures and I think they'll be fine, there's nothing that makes me feel better than to text one of my partners, especially my partners with more gray hairs, and to say, you guys would treat this non-op too, right? And I'm just wondering if seeing all this survey data and seeing that people 
also have equipoise. Has that changed your practice at all? Has it made you think differently about these or do you feel like you were already on that? I don't know if it's more conservative or less conservative side of the spectrum. At my institution, I perceive that there is more treatment of off-ended distal radii without reduction treatment as a result of awareness of these investigations. So I, I'm in a large group, as Dr. Janicki is, but a few people have peeled off and have started to treat, in particular, younger children, like four to seven Um but that's also a discussion with the family. Um, I'll never forget, I had a five-year-old with a, a perfect one for, I thought, non-reduction treatment. It wasn't very shortened. But mom was a pediatrician high up in the hospital, and I carefully explained in two sentences what we could do, and she wanted it reduced for her mm -hmm. child. And so, you know, this is um, shared decision-making. This is the essence of it. So as long as we understand the consequences and everyone's comfortable, um, both treatments will give you um, at least a good radiographic outcome, we think. So um, sounds like major takeaways are we are reducing as on a whole, more commonly still reducing these fully displaced and shortened uh, distal radius fractures. However, most of us or majority seem to recognize that um, we're not certain about that being the optimal treatment and we're at least willing to randomize um, or say we'd be willing to randomize uh, that treatment because we're not sure what the right answer is. So that's a perfect segue into kind of the future directions and the ongoing efforts um, from uh, Dr. Janicki and the Northwestern group, as well as all the collaborators nationwide. So Jamie, would you kind of tell us about that, uh, the impact studies that we've made some reference to already? Yeah, definitely. Um, I would like to first start out and say that um, we have submitted a U01 uh, mechanism grant to the NIH to support a future trial of distal radius fractures. Um, we are currently working on building um, all the agreements in place and the databases and the protocols and um, getting all the infrastructure basically in place so that we could hit the ground running with the trial as soon as funding starts. Um, if anyone is interested in participating, let me know. Um, we recognize that this is going to be a major collaborative effort and we need as many people on board as possible. If anyone has any questions and participating in that, please feel free to contact any of us, um, Dr. Janicki, Dr. Giordratis, or myself. And what is the, um, the soonest do you think that we would have preliminary data on uh, this randomized comparison of you know, sedated reductions of radius fractures versus non-sedated mobilization? We have estimated that recruitment will last three years. So... At the earliest, um, we would have something um, probably May of 2024. Okay, so all the PAUSE members have that to look forward to, um, and it should be very, very high impact. Um, Dr. Georgianis, anything to add? No, just uh, what a pleasure it's been to talk about our research and really what the clinical impact could be going forward if we're able to collaborate with other POSNA members prospectively, which is exciting and something that we can always do more of in pediatric orthopedics. Yeah, I would, I would encourage everyone to be involved. Um, I think it's an extremely interesting study and it will take a lot of effort to coordinate with all of our emergency room doctors and our resident physicians who are all used to doing things a certain way. Um, but that's more reason that we need a multi-center approach. And full disclosure, um, my center is involved in this. Um, but uh, I think 
based off the conference calls we've had, I think that can be said for about half the centers in the United States at this point. So um, maybe that's not too Yeah, easy. we've we've got quite a few people involved, which I am incredibly grateful for. Okay, again, we have uh, Dr. Jamie Burgess from Northwestern and Dr. Uh, Andy Georgiatis from Gillette Children's. And thank you both for being here with me. Thanks, Craig. Thank you. Thank you for having us. You bet. Thanks, Craig. That's it for this month. And thank you to all of our listeners. We'll see you next time on the JPO podcast. Mm-hmm.